Hello and welcome to our Classic Music Podcast Extra. I'm Lawrence Lewis, coming to you live from Bloomsbury in central London, from where in this edition I'm going in search of the Bloomsbury musician. Well, that's Variation 7, Trite, from Elgar's Enigma Variations, which might go some way to providing a clue as to whom that Bloomsbury musician could be. Now, every Holmes has to have a Watson, and our Watson on our quest is literary historian and bookworm Goretta Bronte. It's great to have you along, Goretta. It's great to be here. You know, however many times you walk these Bloomsbury streets, you can always pick up on things you may have missed. So I'm hoping to add another few facts to those already stored away. So here we are, bang in the centre of the literary square mile of London. It's littered with blue plaques recording the lives of creators, philanthropists and local people. Can you explain why it has become so associated with writers? Well, there are two important facts. The opening of the British Library in 1857 and that Bloomsbury was perceived as a cheap area in which to live as opposed to the smarter and more expensive West End. It was also a time of great social change, particularly for women who were beginning to shake off the constraints of Victorian housewifery. The other thing, of course, is that Bloomsbury's many squares made it a great place to live and work. Well, we're beginning our quest in Mecklenburg Square, outside Byron Court, where there's actually no blue plaque to a writer who lived here for over 40 years. Yes, that's something. No blue plaque. That writer was Emanuel Litvinov. He lived for 46 years in Mecklenburg Square, modestly and to some extent invisibly. I knew him well, a man of wit, generosity and integrity. He was a great writer. He was also a human rights activist. He wrote novels, poetry and plays for the Thames television series Armchair Theatre. He famously challenged the great T.S. Eliot in a poem to T.S. Eliot, who had reprinted anti-Semitic lines in a new selection of his poetry after the Holocaust. It's well worth a read. Also worth reading is Emmanuel's account of living in the East End of London 
in the early 20th century entitled Journey Through a Small Planet. The author Patrick Wright describes it as a masterly evocation of a long-vanished world. Emmanuel was also a war poet whose poetry plumed the depths of mystery and despair. Read his poem Nightmare Over Euston about going off from Euston Station to fight in the Second World War. Other poems have an Old Testament ring to them, but he could do the ordinary as well. He had three children from his first marriage and wrote Poems for Three Children, which were published in a journal called Poetry and Poverty, Issue 5. This is the first verse of one of the poems. To Sarah. So newly uncurled from eternity, blue eyes unclouded by fable. Life is a long drink between sleeping. Here then is a story to begin all your magical tales to come. It does show how densely concentrated writers were in this square. For instance, just a few doors along we have a group of three who lived on this side of Mecklenburg Square, but not necessarily at the same time. Yes, uh, they are very different personalities. The most recent is the historian and political writer, R. H. Tawney, who died in 1962. Then we have Helena Normanton, barrister and advocate for women's rights. She died in 1957. Then we have Charlotte Mew. I have much more empathy for Charlotte Mew than for any of the blooms and berries. She was born in 30 Doughty Street in 1869 into a, a poor family. Three of her brothers died while she was a child then a brother and sister were committed to psychiatric hospitals where they remained. She and her sister vowed to remain childless so as not to pass on what they thought was a family disorder. Unlike Virginia Woolf, money was a problem. Virginia had servants all her life. Charlotte's father died in 1898 without provision for any of his family. Charlotte was also unlucky in love. She was a homosexual, but the women to whom she made advances were not interested. Thomas Hardy called her the best woman poet of her day. Virginia Woolf said she was very good and interesting and quite unlike anyone else. One of Charlotte's poems, Rooms, contrasts with Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Virginia's room was a place of freedom where one could write unimpeded by a husband and domestic concerns. Charlotte saw rooms as a confinement. She had witnessed too much death. I remember rooms that have had their part in the steady slowing down of the heart are the first two lines of her poem, Rooms. Charlotte's poetry reminds me of Christina Rossetti's uh, Charlotte died at 58, Virginia at 59. Both were in despair. Charlotte drank Elisol, a hospital disinfectant, in a nursing home to which she went after her beloved sister died of cancer. We know of Virginia and the river. Now I am left wondering what Rossetti had to say about rooms. You mentioned the uh, Coretta Doughty Street. 
If we carried on in a straight line, we'd arrive actually in Doughty Street where Charles Dickens lived. We would. Dickens seems to have lived everywhere. We're not going that way, but to the other side of the square and number 44. Wow, here's a name to conjure with Goretta, Hilda Doolittle. She's described as a poet who lived here between 1916 and 1918. That's a pretty horrendous time in history. Does her poetry reflect that? No, I wouldn't say it does. She's certainly not one of the war poets like Wilfred Orne or Isaac Rosenberg. H.D., as she was known, came from Philadelphia, quickly gaining entry to the London avant-garde literary and artistic scene. When her partner, Frances Gregg, left her to return to America to marry, H.D. was bereft and never really recovered. So no, H.D. never witnessed up front what the great war poets witnessed. She was more of a dreamer, writing, the hard sand breaks and the grains of it are clear as wine. Notwithstanding the gentle quality of those lines, H.D. appears, like so many Bloomsbury writers, a very tortured person. Now, Coretta, it's obvious from our current viewpoint opposite number 44 Mecklenburg Square that it got knocked about during the Second World War, but at least Hilda Doolittle's house survived. Yes, um, I've always thought Hilda Doolittle should have been called Hilda Do A Lot, because she really did a lot. Um, this house it has been used as a film set in an episode of the Crown series. The rest of this side of the square is obviously a new build. Does it have historical connections? Well, firstly, these days it houses Goodenough College, which is named after Frederick Goodenough, chairman of Barclays Bank who established it in 1930 as the first residence in London for international postgraduate students. In its original form, it was the home of the famous Hogarth Press, founded by Virginia and Leonard Wolfe. It's where Virginia wrote Room with a View, a great one over Mecklenburg Square Gardens. Each year, one lucky student gets a room that approximates to where Virginia's room was in the original building. Her name is synonymous with Bloomsbury. From our perspective, does she still have anything to offer today's readers and writers? Well, she belongs on English literature courses, I think, now and in history because the Bloomsbury group is really now history. The group of writers and artists who lived in the squares of this area, in the Georgian houses, were mostly university educated and wealthy. They had the luxury of being financially able to break the confines of Victorian conventions and boundaries imposed upon them, and to that extent they were breaking new ground. But that ground, for Western women at least, has been broken for quite some time now. Virginia comes across as a rather sad person. Um, I have read that she never had sex with her long-suffering husband, Leonard Wolfe, who, less than six months after his wife's death, embarked on a relationship with Trekkie Parsons, who was already married. When Trekkie's husband was posted to France, 
She went to live with Wolf in Lewes, sleeping in Virginia Woolf's old bed. No wonder people say about the Bloomsbury writers and artists that they lived in squares but loved in triangles. <laughs> it must have been tough on Leonard, waiting for three weeks before Virginia Woolf's body was recovered from the river into which she threw herself. Wow, that's something that must have been really traumatic. You can only imagine how it affected the people around her. Now, where are you going to take us next? I think we'll go through Mecklenburg Street, which must be the shortest in London, then along Heathcote Street to St George's Gardens. But Goretti, you've brought us to a cemetery. It was a cemetery. It was the burial ground for St George's Church, which we'll pass later. It opened as a public park in 1885. There's still a lot of old crumbling graves. Can you point out any one of particular interest? This one we're standing by is the resting place of Anna Gibson, who was Oliver Cromwell's granddaughter. She died in 1727. The box-like structure, actively crumbling, as you noted, is known as a chest tomb. On a lighter note, during the summer there are concerts and theatrical performances in these gardens and we're approaching some theatricals now as we head for Wakefield Street. By way of passing Handel Street, we must of course mention Handel's connection to Bloomsbury through his association with Thomas Coram's Foundling Hospital. The grounds of which today contain a park and this must be unique. Adults cannot enter unless they're with a small child. Okay, Goretta, you promised us some theatricals here on Wakefield Street. Indeed. On this site, previously number 13, between 1868 and 1870, lodged Ernest Bolton and Frederick Park. They were known as Stella and Fanny, notorious Victorian crossdressers. Both men were gay in a period when discovery and prosecution could lead to a lifetime prison sentence. But that didn't stop Fanny and Stella from enjoying a career appearing in plays around the country performing women's roles. Along the way, Ernest Bolton picked up a pretend husband in Lord Arthur Clinton, also gay, and the Liberal Party Member of Parliament for Newark. Now it starts to get complicated. On the 28th of April 1870, Bolton and Park dressed as Fanny and Stella and went to a show at the Strand Theatre. Upon leaving, they were arrested. Their charge, following a year-long police observation, was that of indulging in illegal sexual practices. There followed time in custody and numerous appearances at Bow Street Magistrates Court. Their case became a media sensation of its time, continued until a jury found them not guilty. It cost them plenty. When on the 6th of June 1871 they accepted a lesser charge of dressing as women in public and were bound over for two years in the sum of 500 guineas each. Wow, 500 guineas, that, that would be thousands it, in today's it, money. Yes, it would indeed. It's an extraordinary story. 
Well, for more theatricals, let's head for Marchmont Street. Well, I've seen it mentioned that Marchmont Street is reminiscent of a Parisian boulevard. Yes, it's full of bookshops, cafes, whole food shops and bars. It's also got more blue plaques per house than probably any other street in Bloomsbury. So who shall we start with? Well, keeping our theatre thing going, we're outside the house where the actor and playwright Emlyn Williams lived, while across the road lived, between 1825 and 1845, William Henry Hunt, a celebrated watercolour painter. Much more recently, the poet and critic Sir William Empson he died in 1984, lived on Marchmont Street between 1929 and 1931. Now, Lawrence, I believe you have a couple of Marchmont Street residents you wanted to talk about? Yes, Charles Fort, 1874 to 1932, may not be an instantly recognisable name. He was an American writer who studied paranormal phenomena, matters like UFOs, images of religious personalities appearing in sliced fruits and strange coincidences. His researches continue today in the magazine Fortean Times. Now comedian Kenneth Williams, he's almost a Fortean character. He lived between 1935 and 1956 at 57 Marchmont Street. 1956 is about the time he began to become famous with his appearances on Hancock's half-hour radio show. Of course, he subsequently became a legend as a member of the Carry On team. Carry On Clio of 1964, their amazing send-up of the Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton film Cleopatra, gave Kenneth Williams a Caesar one of the great comic lines of all time. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me! <laughs> it, it really doesn't matter how many times you hear that line, it's always funny. I'm sure we could stand here and discuss Kenneth Williams all day, but we must move on. So where are you taking us next? Uh, towards the end of our quest, Lawrence. After Marchmont Street, we'll be heading for Queen's Square, passing St George's Church, where poor Ted Hughes married Sylvia Plath, and on to Cosmo Place. So, here we are at the junction of Cosmo Place and Southampton Row, and the site where your elusive Bloomsbury musician was born in 1899. Yes, the plaque says on a house on this site, was born Giovanni Barbarolli, but we of course know him as Sir John Barbarolli. He was originally a cellist, formed his own orchestra and became a celebrated conductor. His reputation was so high that he succeeded Arturo Toscanini as conductor of the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra. In 1943, he returned to England to rescue an ailing Halle Orchestra which he conducted for 25 years. It was his recording of Elgar's Enigma Variations with the Philharmonia Orchestra we heard at the start of this podcast. 
It was recorded in Kingsway Hall, not all that far from here, which is still in the Bloomsbury area. Sadly, Kingsway Hall, with its wonderful acoustic, felt the demolition ball some years ago. That was very sad, but so much has been destroyed in this area. I hope the hard search for your Bloomsbury musician has shown that a lot survives and memories evoked by these blue plaques remain to be thought of by future generations. Absolutely, Goretta, and thank you for your wonderful literary insights. It was my pleasure. Now that we've found our Bloomsbury musician, let's return to Elgar and the finale of Elgar's Symphony No. 1, recorded in 1962 by the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by Sir John Barbaroli. Wow, I think after that we deserve a drink in the Glynn's Irish pub. You know, that's in Argyle Street, King's Cross, where Ealing Studios filmed The Lady Killers. Yes, Lawrence, I knew that, but that's another story entirely.